Welcome to uh, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Uh, joining me on the phone from the band The Cutting Crew, it is Nick Van Eed. They have a new album out called Ransom Heal Restored Forgiven. And of course, we talk about uh, Kevin McMichael, great, great Canadian songwriter and guitarist and member of uh, Cutting Crew. We remember him as he passed away a few years ago. And uh, we also discussed the band working with uh, Rush producer Terry Brown. Uh, anyway, uh, here on Rock Talk, we talk about all rock, um, anything, especially from, uh, from the 80s. And we do it in a positive, positive context. Always, always supporting the artists. Uh, anyway, here is, from the cutting crew, the one, the only, Nick Van Eed. We are speaking with the cutting crew's Nick Van Eed, the new album, Ransom, Heal, Restored, and Forgiven, recorded with the Prague and Slovenia Philharmonic Orchestras. Uh, great, great stuff. Uh, as we say in Montreal, uh, bonjour, and I know you've been to Canada a lot, so you understand bonjour. Bonjour, yeah, comment ça va? Ça um, va très, très je bien. Je suis enchanté. <laughs> yes. Well, let me start with that, just quit real quick, because a lot of bands look at the cutting, or a lot of bands, fans, I should say, look at the cutting crew as a European band or a UK band, but truth be told, you sort of cut your teeth in Canada for the most part, going back with the drivers and uh, tears on your anorak all the way over to cutting crew. You were sort of like hometown heroes in a sense, right? Yeah, Canada's always been there. Uh, by accident to start with, the drivers were a band that got signed up to a a very odd record label in Toronto by um, a guy who was eventually arrested by federal police. Um, but that's when we met and became good friends with Terry Brown. Obviously, his his uh, story goes without any introduction with, with Rush. Um, and when the album was being recorded, the Cutting Crew album was being recorded, we were going around in circles slightly, and I called for the cavalry, and Terry, Terry said, well, when do you need me? And I said, tomorrow. He said, okay. <laughs> And he got on the plane and flew over and took took charge. So yeah, and and of course, much more important than that, Kevin McMichael, my long dear departed guitarist, was a maritimer. So um, I've lived in Nova Scotia many times over the years. Yes, and 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 I do want to talk about Kevin uh, as well. He did, of course, pass away. So uh, my, my sympathies, and of course, may he rest in peace. But let us uh, talk quickly about this album, and then we'll look back on some of the. Uh, of the of the history, so ransom healed, restored, sure. and forgiven. Uh, talk to me about putting these songs together with a philharmonic, because you know to 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 put it together and have an arrangement and do a pop song and use a Lynn drum and have Steve Thompson and Michael Barbiero twist some knobs. <laughs> that's pretty simple, but reimagining them and having to have completely new arrangements is a whole different ball game. So so talk to me about the challenge. And of course, the joy, I mean, it's not negative, uh, of putting together the album. Yeah, well, it, it was daunting. I mean, when I was offered it, first of all, since 1985, good people like yourselves, fans, my mom, everybody has said, you know, that your songs would work so well with an orchestra. And I've always said, well, thank you. You know, it doesn't mean they're better songs than anybody else's, but the way Kevin and I wrote them, the way we layered stuff and had like motifs from his guitar, so it's always been a dream, and when it was offered, I, it was that kind of, uh, yes, I'd love to, but as um, you know the expression, leave well enough alone, 
uh, was staring me in the face. You know, why would you want to start tinkering with, with songs? Some of them, which are very, very big songs in people's memories. But we did it, and my God, it was complicated. Uh, uh, but and, and a very uh, emotional journey, and I don't mean that in a hokey way. It was some, there were some very beautiful moments. There, there were some gorgeous, gorgeous moments. Um, I will, of course, ask you about I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight, but I'm going to sure. put it this way. Uh, years ago, uh, I was friends with Doug Feger of The Knack, and of course he's passed away as well, and I was talking yeah. to Doug, and I was saying, boy, man, it must be so great to have written my Sharona. My God, well... If I could write a song like that, I'd, I'd have it made. And he said, you know what? He said it was like a golden albatross. And I'll never forget those two words. And I go, what do you mean? Mm-hmm. He goes, on one hand, Mitch, you see that pool? And he's, it bought me all of that. But on the other hand, it limited what I could do creativ- creatively. Cre- creatively. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's 11 in the morning. But he you said... Had, you put your emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> Uh, but he said it, it limited me because every time I would write a song, I would go to the record company and they'd go, that's great, Doug, but mm, I don't hear another My Sharona. Could you try again? Um, is it possible that a song like I Just Died in Your Arms Tonight, which made you a success, was number one, could it be a golden albatross like like Doug described? Or did it? was it that, was that your experience as well? Back then... After the first album, you know, we had the audacity. That's why the press hated us. We had the audacity to come from nowhere and have this big smash. Um, and then, so immediately on that second album, we got that that shit from the record company. You know, we really love the album. Ameri- Americans are taking charge by now. We really love the album, guys. Some really good deep cuts there, but we're not hearing that die in your arms. So that hurt, that stung. And of course, you know, you deal with it how you will. Ten years later, hey, I'm, I, 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 that song is my passport. She's my, she's my bank manager. She's my lover. I mean, you know, um, we have a lot of fun together. We've embraced it. And uh, but I, I hear what Doug was saying. But no, only for a couple of years with me. Only for a couple of years. Oh, really? So, so, but but it did happen. The record company did sort of give you that nod, nod, wink, wink, like, dude, that's that's cool. But yeah, I don't, I don't hear it. Which it's got to be frustrating. Got that, but, but as you'll hear over the over the albums that, that we've made since, you know, um, I've always I've always tried to push forward and be brave and and take risks, and so that's what we did, and maybe that's why, you know, we didn't go on to sell another five million albums. But I'm proud of each one we've done, and and so bringing it, you know, round to ransom healed, restored, freaking. Which, by the way, do you know what, where those four words come from, Mitch? No, I do not. Well, it's uh, Anglican hymn. When I was a kid. I used to go to Sunday school, you know, and there's nothing else to do on a Sunday morning. And uh, I'm not, not a church person now, but it was from a song, uh, a hymn called Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven. So here you go. Praise my soul, the King of Heaven, to his feet thy tribute bring, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. And I wrote down those words about 20 years ago, I remember, not as a kid. And I thought when we were doing this project, well, we've been ransomed. They're going to pay a bit of money. Um, hopefully, we're going to heal the songs and restore them. And, um, and most importantly, hopefully, the fans will forgive me for doing it. <laughs> oh, hey, listen, it worked. All right, so uh, the album broadcast, which was sort of the, the big breakout album that had the song, had Terry Brown, as you mentioned. And, of course, for Canadians, Terry Brown did everything rush. He did Max Webster. He did Lauren Gowan. He did Moist. And yes, by the way, I'm naming all the bands that I have friends in. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, because that's he how he did Clatu as well. Do you remember Clatu? Yes, I do. I, uh, yeah, he also did April Wine, and, and boy, just a lot of great stuff. So, talk to me how you got Terry Brown involved. Because listen, you you do the drivers, you do Tears on Your Anorak. It's it's got a little modicum of success, and but how do you get the guy that's producing Rush or has produced Rush to land on your album? Um. Well, you know, as I said before, the, the, the album started in New York and we recorded a couple of tracks. We went back to Britain and uh, we were involved with another producer that doesn't have to be named. He wasn't working out. And uh, he, we'd become firm friends by then, uh, but that didn't mean that he was going to come over and rescue anything. But we knew how to make records, Terry and I. You know, he has that great ability to just sit, and, sit there as, as the, the other ear and come in. And of course, he's a sensational engineer. But I did. I called him. It was one in the morning from Air Studios on Oxford Street in London. We're drowning. We have this new record deal. We've been to New York where, you know, the record company's going, oh, that's getting a little difficult, this cutting crew. And we weren't being difficult. We just wanted a producer. And I called him. And as I said, he, he, he flew over. And uh, within weeks, he got us into Chipping Norton Studios, a very famous old studios in Oxfordshire, and uh, a flagon of beer under the desk every night. And... Uh, we, it, it never turned back from there. It never turned back. Wow, that's great. And, of course, uh, you do have that team, which we mentioned, and I'm going to go through this, of uh, Steve uh, Thompson and Michael Barbiero. Now, at that time, they were doing a lot of the pop stuff. Eventually, they became sort of the heavy metal guys by doing the Teslas and the the, the Metallicas and stuff. What did they bring to the game? And, and Because those two guys together are are dynamic duo yeah that, that was very special that was the first thing that ever happened you see branson branson knew that we should be produced by america well north americans i mean he he knew that we had that guitar we were a guitar band I and mean, we weren't, weren't hard rock or anything but we certainly weren't just pop so he uh, sent us to new york and we this old converted church midtown a place called media sounds that steve and michael used a lot so we met them and uh we recorded uh, two or three tracks, but the one that stood out was uh, I've Been In Love Before. That's their production, and I think that's one of the most gorgeous um, records I've ever made. Michael was all over it. I remember him saying, he came in one morning with a big smile on his face. You know, we'd only just recorded it. And I said, what's the matter? He said, I think I'm the first guy to have made love to that song. <laughs> that's, what, that's what songs are for. All right, so let me... Let's look at the career. So Broadcast comes out. You've got a number one single. It goes up to uh, number 16 on the Billboard uh, 200 album chart. Scattering comes out a couple of years later. Goes up to 150. It's doing good. Then, uh, <laughs> then Compass comes out. Talk to me about the the challenges of keeping the, the, the train moving forward. And by the time you get to 92, 93, why does it sort of run out of steam? What, what, what was going on? And... and was it just too difficult, and, and does it have a little bit to do with what I was saying before, that you've got such a big hit that people go, all right, where's your other big hit? Definitely that, yeah. Obviously, radio had, had already made that decision, I think. Um, <clears throat> the uh, and, and, and everything changed, Mitch. I mean, I could see it. Oh, I'm sure everybody could see it, but we were still in the studio recording six-minute-long, you know, big rock ballads or, or whatever, quirky stuff so with all the headphone shit going on and all that. And um, in Britain, anyway, we had people like Soul to Soul and Nana Cherry, 
coming along with these very cool, you know, urban grooves and just delicious, new, bright, colourful things. Um, I remember one night at the studios, we were recording the third album, Compass Mentis, and we just delivered it, we just finished it, and uh, this very ominous bunch of guys in suits were coming around and into the studio, and we'd never seen these guys before, and they were basically coming to start to talk to us about, you know, the fact that uh, we would be uh, leaving the label that night. And that was the night Virgin got rid of, I think, 85 bands. Um, and they were all the bands that had served him well, but it was time to move on. You know, th- there was a whole new generation of pop music coming in. Yeah, and it, it, it changed everything. We out go the Lynn drums and in came whatever came in. Oh. Yeah, and, and it was great. And I, I, you know, I get that. I, I absolutely get it. And it needed it as well. So, so we carried on. But in the end, you know, Kevin and I looked at each other. He went on to, to join Robert Plant's band. Um, and I went, yes. did a bit of, pretended I could be a manager. And I wasn't. <laughs> well, I, and I did, I did want to ask about the uh, fate of nations, but before we get to fate of nations, I do want to stick with you. Uh, so the, the, the band disbands and new sounds come in. Okay, fine. At some point, uh, Tony Banks, Mike Rutherford, Genesis give you a call and you and Ray Wilson are battling it out to be the next singer of Genesis. And I will say for the record, the Ray Wilson album is good. Underrated gem. But talk to me about that. How how do do Tony? I mean, obviously you've all been sort of in the same music circles, and oh, I know a guy who knows a guy who knows Nick. Okay, but what was the process like for you? Yeah, that was um, especially as Gabriel era Genesis were you know were my total heroes. Um, I remember shaving my head right down the front like Peter did, coming and sitting down next to Mum and Dad when I was about fourteen years old. So this was. The stuff dreams are made of. Chris Neal, our producer on Compass Mentis, put my name uh, forward. And uh, they sent, this is in the days of cassettes, can you imagine? They sent me a box of about 12 cassettes. And on each cassette was the songs they wanted me to sing uh, with the backtracks and the lyrics and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, tricky ones like Turn It On Again with all those, I, I get so lonely and I used to make these little kind of strange um, musical charts showing all those pushes then there'll be the tricky ones the high ones the slow ones all that anyway so then I turned up at the uh, their studios over in um, beautiful Surrey in southeast England and they were there and um, I walked in and they said okay right then well Mike speaks very enough hello Nick would you just go go through and start away then and I said well where are the band where's the band he said no 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 band here today just just sing along to the backtracks and I thought oh shit because in their letter they put if any of the keys were a little high the band will change key (laughs) so uh, all I can say is I think it was on tonight 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 I think I nearly ripped my voice to pieces it was a beautiful experience. That's I remember hilarious. sitting down afterwards and playing carpet crawlers on my guitar with Mike singing it and Tony playing keyboards. So uh, beautiful. Uh, Ray got the job, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll savor the memory forever, though. Yeah, I can imagine. And, and Calling All Stations is, is, is an underrated album. D- did you sing or have any part in the making of any of those songs? Were any of them, you know, like, hey, let's write a couple of songs and see where it goes, and then, you know, Ray ends up singing them? Or... Did you have absolutely no involvement in that? Absolutely nothing. No, no. Okay. It was done. It was dusted. I was um, <clears throat> getting married on June the uh, June the 
15th in 1996 and uh, in the morning, you know, when you're running around getting your buttonholes and make sure your suit's pressed and everything, the phone rang and it was Mike and he said, hi Nick, it's uh, Mike Rutherford here from, from Genesis. I went, oh my God. And he said, you know, we, we really love you. You were the chap. You were the chap. But just, did, did, just some high end, when you know, sort of range difficulties we had. I hope I haven't spoiled your day. And I said, no, no, not at all. I'm getting married in three hours. That's hilarious. I, I do want to ask. So, so the audition, you you show up and you're going to play the tracks. Which I can just imagine it's got to be so somewhat self defeating. You're all pumped up. I'm going to be with the guys. We're going to jam, and then it's like, all right, I'm just going to hit play. <laughs> but, Absolutely. I was so keen. I thought I thought Chester might be there and, and all these people. Uh, and um, and I remember when tonight, tonight, tonight was the high one. I said to the engineer, I said, well, what, you know, what are we going to do about the key? He said, he said, well, I can put my fingers on the reel and slow it down if you want me to. Oh my God! Did did you show up that day with with a whole bunch of vinyls under your arm, with a sharpie in the left hand, going, where, where, where are the guys? Where are the guys? Where are the guys? I'm far too cool for that. <laughs> um, uh, jokes aside, were were there um, any demos made of that? Uh, if I go to YouTube and stuff, can folks hear that stuff? Or have you ever covered the songs live just for the fun of it? Uh, Genesis. Well, we did first uh, of fourth a couple of times as cutting crew um but no i tell you what is i i don't know if anything exists or not but this is a true story um this, this sounds like a genesis interview um i went to, my my drummer is a complete genesis nut and when that studio closed down they sold up everything they sold all the hardware everything from you know the, the toilet rolls or whatever and he was over there and, and fans like the top 50 fans who won access were allowed to walk around the studio. And he walked and he saw this, you know, like a, an area where lots of cassettes were thrown in. And it said, Nick Van Nee demo sessions. And I said, my God, why didn't you pinch it? Steal it, steal it. He never did. So I think there is a cassette out there somewhere. Oh, oh that's terrible. Um, Ransom Heal Restored and Forgiven, of course, is uh, out. Uh, let me ask you just real quick. Normally, the next question is, are you going to take this on the road with uh, the orchestra? Not going to happen, yeah. really. But eventually, it might happen. Do, do you see yourself maybe in 2021, 2022, or God forbid, 2030, when they say we can go back to shows, that you will want to take this out on the road and do the whole treatment with the strings? Absolutely right to point out who knows when that will happen. Um, it's been just, you know, nothing for the next seven or eight months now. But we have six symphony halls booked uh, with another 80s band uh, next May in Britain. So we're hoping that we're going to get a promoter to see that and uh, bring us out to the States and Canada because it, it, would, it would, obviously, it's an expensive thing to move around. We'd have to use local orchestras and so on. But no, we have six definite dates. So very excited about that. Oh, I do hope they they come through. Um, a few years ago, I took my son to see the Lego Batman movie, and I Just Died in Your Arms was in the movie. How important is it for an artist like yourself to have songs on soundtracks, and, and what does it do for you? Because here this, this comes out, you know, 30 years later. Does it create a new interest? Other than just the financial stuff, what does it do for you um, just career-wise? Yeah. Well, it's pretty cool. I mean, you know, yes, you're right. You get paid well for those kind of things. And it's very lucky all these years later to have that. That song, just like Mitch, um, just like Doug's and other people's, you know, they, they seem to have legs 
and they just even get bigger really over the years. So when you can get something on a on a different generation's movie, or like it was on Stranger Things on, on the opening season um, season opener, sorry. Uh, you then you you can see it happen. Not not so much in sales with Spotify, it's gone berserk. Um, but you see it happening on the people that join the Facebook and Twitter accounts, and they're younger. And of course, my daughter and my nieces are all, all find it hilarious. So yeah, it's it's gratifying. Um, and of course, it, it's the biggest scene in Batman, isn't it? I mean, he looks up and sees the new female commissioner, and uh, this camp moment. Oh, I. I'm very proud of it. You should be. It's it's listen. It's a it's a fabulous song. It, it is uh, easily to say an iconic song. I mean, everybody knows it, even if you're not a fan of the genre. It's it's that yeah. that good. Um, Kevin McMichael. He of course is from New Brunswick, a Canadian. He was in the band. Uh, has uh, since passed away. May he rest in peace. He did that time with uh, Robert Plant. Talk to me a little bit about that. Were you aware, not, I mean, obviously you're aware that he's with Robert Plant, but did he phone you up someday and say, hey, listen, you won't believe who called me. <laughs> it's Robert Plant from Led Zeppelin. Like, talk to me. Do you know anything about the story of him being with Robert Plant? Yeah, yeah. Well, we were best mates uh, right through till the day I buried him. You know, it was, uh, he was extremely, he was the most important man ever in my life, apart from maybe my dad and brother, you know. He was my mentor. He was, um, he was, he taught me so much about books and, uh, he had no ego. He was a beautiful man. Anyway, when the cutting crew were nearing the end, Compass Mentis was the third album we made. And, um, the keyboard player stroke producer we used was a guy called Phil, Phil, somebody can't remember. Anyway, he was the keyboard player in Robert's band. And it was quite obvious those two were staying up all night doing all kinds of things. And I was shuffling off to bed trying to keep this album on, on track. And then, so they became best friends. And I guess as soon as and there was no poaching that went on, as soon as Kevin and I looked each other in the eye and said, that's it, we're cutting through, uh, he got the invitation. And it, it was quite spectacular. I think he went uh, straight into the studio and uh, went for auditions. And he told me beautiful stories about um, sitting with Robert and expecting to be you know, to be, get the guitar out and play all kinds of things. And in the end, Robert just sort of chatted with him, and, and they both had this big love of uh, 60s, early 70s, uh, West Coast American bands, the Moby Grapes and so on. So suddenly Robert was in charge because Kevin could hold court and talk about all these people. The Tim Hardins and the... Um, so anyway, they uh, strapped on the guitar, and I think one of the first songs they ever recorded was if I were a carpenter, the Leon Russell song. So there was a bit of a love affair that went on. Um, I can go on a little bit more if you want. Yeah, 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 please, please do. Uh, it's a great yeah. story. Well, I, um, I would, you know, Kevin would say, we're playing in a little tiny pub in South London, just nobody knows anything about it. You've got to come along. It's the half moon in Putney. So I saw, you know, a whole lot of love. Um, I saw Kashmir. I saw these songs in a pub the size of, you know, our kitchen. Um, with Francis Dunnery, Dunnery from um, It Bites on, on the left wing, Kevin on the right wing, Robert in the middle, um, and Kevin, who'd now <laughs> grown his hair so long and was playing a Les Paul. Kevin never played Gibson's. He was a Fender guy through and through. Suddenly he's got the big medallion. Um, he's got the chest. He doesn't have a chest, 
but he uh, had the had the, the buttons open and he's giving that on and on and it was one of those forever moments i was so proud of him wow what what a what a great time so you're you're sitting in this bar watching what's it like to have robert because you look at him now and he prefers to do these intimate shows and he but do you look at that and just go hey this is the guy from led zeppelin who's standing two feet from me how how, how talk to me a little bit about that experience about how that must have been yeah well if you've if you've been in the music business as long as you and i have been in it you know yeah. you you knock around a lot of very famous people and mostly it's it becomes very day to day and a bit of the shine gets rubbed off because you tend to meet these people you know in a hotel lobby or something but robert was special because i was huge well huge jimmy page fan but robert was sex you know that was that rock for me music even ever even what i've been doing on this recent album it has to have sex in it somewhere and robert epitomized that and probably still does as an old geezer so to see him would uh him and bowie were the two and i never got to meet david i saw him live but never got to meet him so yeah it was pretty special um but as i said i don't mean this unkindly at all it was just Kevin, um, off the record, you know, off the record in front of millions of people now, wasn't much of a Led Zepp fan, but there he was. If I said to you tomorrow, and he's playing those big blues cards and winking at me. <laughs> but listen, a lot of uh, a lot of musicians are in bands that they're not fans of. You, you know, I, I like you know, I, I know a lot of the ghost musicians and a lot of the, and they go do these records and they don't like it, but they're like, hey, gig's a gig, and uh, you know. Whatever. Um, let's just quickly get back to uh, Ransom Heel, Restored and Forgiven. Of course, there is uh, some of the classic songs reimagined. Where do you see yourself in terms of new music? Uh, creativity. Uh, what am I doing today? Creatively. <laughs> okay, whatever. It's one of those days. Um, it's obviously important to, to keep writing and keep moving forward and, and stuff, but... At some point, there's also the reality of I'm going to go play a show and fans want to hear the, 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 their favorite 10 tracks, so let's just do that. Um, do you see yourself wanting to make a new album at any point? And Yeah, no, we, we released Add to Favorites uh, three years ago, which has uh, 12 brand new songs. We play probably six of them when we do gigs all around the world. Um, uh, we had brass on it for the first time. We had girl singers, so we were pushing it wider and wider. Recorded live off the floor as well about eight, nine, ten, ten of us all standing in the studio. So I've been making albums, you know, right through a live album four years ago. So this one came out of the blue, and I've got half an album already written. Um, so this was just too good to turn down. You know, this was an offer. I didn't go hunting for this. Um, we were approached, and uh, as I said, to, to put, put the headphones on and sing a song, just there's two tracks on the album, there's just me and the orchestra, an 80-piece orchestra, was pretty mind-blowing yeah it really was uh and uh on that i will uh ask one last question you did get a grammy nomination for best new artist uh what did that mean for you professionally to to, to have the academy sort of say not the academy i guess but to have the grammys sort of say hey listen out of all the bands that are out here this year you're one of the five that we think we're gonna say hey you deserve to win this yeah, it was a big deal. I was very proud. Um, it, it came one week after my dad died. Um, so I was in New York uh, buying sheet music for the organist to play at his funeral 
two hours before we went to Radio City Music Hall. So it was a, a very bittersweet memory. But but as far as career goes, yeah, uh, very proud. Uh, we didn't win. Jody Watley won. And um, I remember there was this, you know, who gives a damn in the end? But I remember our record company getting so upset because Jody had already been nominated before in um, Shalimar or something. And it was like they wanted to have, to, have, have a revote. It was like, hey, get on with it. My memory of that night is being invited to Prince's party down in um, Soho, somewhere in New, Ho- New York. And again, um, <laughs> this sounds like I'm making fun, but I'm not. But he's so diminutive, shall we say. We never saw him because it was so full. But we saw his bouncers walking around. We saw four bouncers walking around, and we could only presume that he was in the middle of them. That, that's kind of funny. And and from, from what I know with people at Prince parties, for some reason, he always wanted it to be very, very dark. And it's like, yeah. why? Anyway, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah. um, I don't know how it was for you that night, but that's that, that's what I've hold, uh, heard. Anyway, uh, Ransom Heel Restored, Forgiven, recorded with the Prague and Slovenia Philharmonic Orchestras. Do check that out. And uh, as we say in Montreal, merci beaucoup. Absolute pleasure. Merci. Thank you. Uh, merci. Au revoir. And uh, just one last thing for me, as you know, if coming from Canada, my heart goes out to all, all of the, the, the Nova Scotians with the dreadful stuff that happened last week. Um, I've got a hundred friends out there, and it must have been a real shock to the system, especially in Canada. So, uh, love to you all. Thank you, and and I have to say, even as you're saying it, first of all, I'm getting goosebumps on the arm, uh, but I still don't believe it in in the sense of that doesn't happen here, yeah. and, and the fact that they they drove around for hours, or he, the person drove around for I'm not going to name the person; they can forget that. Uh, drove around for hours, and it was so. Pre- that that's it's yeah you know, it's just premeditation yeah. it's pure evil and and sorry to finish from me mitch you know i've done i've done 15 of these with american um stations and i had to watch my tongue slightly because i kind of said what you said you know i was saying that you don't expect that to happen in canada which by which means you know you expect it to happen in the states um and i i didn't really mean that but it is much more common south of the border so um, yeah, it was it was it was shocking, very shocking. And I love I love your country so much. It's it's been it's been there every every step of my of the journey of my life since I was 21 years old. Uh, absolutely, and uh, we will we will leave it on that. And uh, you know, rest uh, rest in peace, everybody we've mentioned today, from Doug Feger to uh, to uh, the guitarist and 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 just uh, sorry, I'm just I'm losing my train of thought. Kevin, yeah, Kevin, yeah. sorry. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the the talking about the Nova Scotia thing has has thrown me off. But uh, thank you so much, and we will uh, hopefully hopefully see you in Canada uh, shortly to be able to play music and bring uh, joy and happiness to people. Let's just hope it's that Symphony Hall in Montreal. <laughs> bye bye. Yeah, cheers now. Bye bye. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch LaFon, and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore LaFon. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtracks.com slash Mitch.